The Stage Door Show. Celebrating the independent artist. With your host, Dave Hondell. Hi everybody, welcome to The Stage Door Show tonight. This is Dave Hondell. Uh, very honored to have the guest that we have tonight. Uh, you'll recognize his work from many, many TV shows. Uh, Seinfeld, Will and Grace, Who's the Boss, uh, Married with Children, so many, many more. Uh, just excited to have him on the show. So thank you for joining me, Mr. Jonathan Wolf. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm so grateful and happy to be here on the Stage Door Show with you. I've checked out your podcast. Good stuff. You've had some really compelling interviews with brilliant artists. Yeah, there'll be none of that in this interview. <laughs> the compelling, brilliant folks, they have a bowling league tonight, I think. <laughs> no, no, no. No, we're, we are so lucky to have you, uh, Jonathan. Again, thank you for uh, agreeing to being on our show. Again, just so honored. Um, you know, just your work over the years and uh, as a musician uh, coming up, um, did you ever think that TV would be the medium that you would end up in? From when I arrived in L.A., I was 17 years old, and for the next 10 years before I earned the title of full-time composer, my career was a seemingly scattered patch quilt of overlapping assignments, mostly for the film and TV studios. I was like a Swiss Army multi-purpose utility tool for musical chores. Anything that smelled like music, I'd take that job. And it turned out that all of that was on-the-job training, grooming me for what came next, my career as a full-time composer. Did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely it did. Absolutely. Uh, you know, speaking of being a composer uh, and being in music, at what point did you become interested in, in making music? I mean, was it when you were a child or was it when you grew up a little more? As a young kid, I liked to build things. For example, I built a, a go-kart, but it, it crashed and fell into a pond. Music, it is. No, seriously, I knew at a young age that I had a superpower, mm -hmm. music. It was my only superpower. And it was strange because there were no musicians in my family, no artists of any kind, but they were supportive. So I got plenty of training really excellent training, formal conservatories, private lessons, local college classes. It was great. And I, because my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky, was at the time a rather small pond. As a teen, even before I could drive, I was able to acquire valuable professional experience. I was working in restaurants, jazz clubs, chamber concerts. I did musical director jobs for opera and theater and produced local recording artists. When I wasn't working, I watched TV just for the themes. Welcome back, Cotter, Sanford and Son, Barney Miller. And with each new record album release, I'd geek out with album liner notes, learning the name of each L.A. studio musician. And I'd play along with those records at home and fantasize that I'm an actual studio musician. So, yes, it was a way cool way to spend my youth, and I knew very young that music was to be my future. Do you think uh, growing up in Louisville as opposed to New York or L.A. or some of the bigger markets, do you think growing up in a smaller market um, 
allowed you to make a name for yourself and kind of get established before moving on to the bigger markets? Absolutely. And that's a really good question. Had I been raised in Chicago, New York, L.A., I would not have been able to work professionally at that level. Uh, For example, the local TV and radio stations in Louisville mostly got their music from larger markets, Indianapolis and Chicago, uh, Nashville. I saw that as an opportunity and started creating station IDs and local commercials for these stations. I was 14 years old. That could never have happened in Boston, for example. Jonathan, how did you get your first break in the TV industry? I was working as a utility guy, mostly doing um, jobs for other composers. I was a studio musician on a lot of sessions. I was an accompanist, an arranger, a recording engineer, which at that time was a separate career. I was an orchestrator for other composers. I created special material for other composers, and I was a songwriter for hire. I was a music copyist and a conductor for hire for other composers. So all of these joblets that were not, you know, credit composer, but they were, I, I met people. I got to know people. The folks in the music offices at the studios, they knew me. They respected my work. They had faith in my professionalism and my abilities. And those relationships carried me further when I decided it was time to become a composer. Oh, man, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Jonathan, talk more about that, if you would. Uh, Talk about the relationship uh, aspect of careers and in this kind of business you know, the importance of that and building those relationships, um, because you just never know down the road uh, who that person is that you talk to today could be the record executive down the road or the the head of a TV studio, let's say. So talk about the importance of relationships um, in any industry, really. Here's my best advice to someone I've never met. Take an inventory of your people skills. Make sure that you're well-rounded, emotionally stable, likable in each professional setting in addition obviously to your talents and superpowers and excellent work standards you should place great value on the human connections to everyone around you in media or music production assignments will come and go but if those relationships are strong your career will also be strong. And I'm not just talking about trying to hook up with directors. I mean the camera operators and the props guys and the producers and the assistant producers and the script supervisors because these folks are all on a path also. And a lot of my jobs later in my career were from those relationships that I had established earlier on. Also, you know, I'm sure everyone we're talking about here has a great demo reel or video project or SoundCloud. And that's nice. However, people don't hire demos. People don't hire SoundClouds. People hire people. Right. For me, it was all about those personal relationships. That was my most most valuable asset. You got to be easy to work with, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jonathan, what was your first uh, TV uh, project that you were hired to do? 
No idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was working 100 plus hours wow. on hundreds of different TV series. Not hyperbole, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't remember what the first sure. was, but uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, there were a lot of nighttime drama, you know, primetime soap sure. shows like Dallas, Falcon Crest, Knott's Landing, The Colbys, Dynasty. You know, those shows used a lot of music. And I was in the rotation for some of them, and I worked for other composers on some of them. Uh, so I don't remember what came first. I, sure. I sometimes I worked some of my onset chores. I would work as a production music consultant. I was an actor's coach for musician and singer roles early on. Uh, early on, I was actually uh, did some screen acting myself, usually as myself as a john the piano player (laughs) so and i did off-camera recordings on the set i was the off-camera pianist for father mulcahy on mash oh wow and i did hand inserts for like twilight zone i did a a well-known one and i did on camera wow uh playing on shows like hotel capital knots landing i had actual here's a distinction dave okay I was probably the worst actor in Hollywood. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I was. Not Landing. Uh, okay. Do we have time? <laughs> yeah, as much time as you need. All right. So I had made a relationship with a director named Kim Friedman, well-established director. And she and I were kind of friendly and were working on what was my first composer Okay. Full-time credit composer gig was a TV series called Square Pegs, started in 1982. Absolutely. And I got a phone call one night from Kim, who I just figured she was calling me something about Square Pegs. But she says, no, nah, nah, I'm, I'm in the rotation now of directors. I just joined the rotation of directors for Knott's Landing, and they're taking me through the Bible and showing me who all the characters are and what the arcing stories are. And they came to this one character— and told me, oh, him, yeah. Don't try to direct him. He just gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> and she thought I should know what they told the directors about me. <laughs> oh, man. And I played the part of a piano player for a, a full season on Knott's Landing. Um, and that was kind of a, <laughs> a funny bit. And I just said, none taken, Kim. Wow. You know, that's that's my era the, of TV. Just love the 80s and you know 90s television the nighttime soaps and all the great great shows and many of them you worked on uh, which brings me to Seinfeld you know just again recognizable iconic uh, sounds and music of that TV show and you know the mouth pops the the slap bass the you know like I said the, so recognizable and and just you know I saw a uh, piece that uh, Entertainment Tonight did on you uh, about how you created that music and how it kind of um, started. And you were actually contacted by Jerry himself, right? I was. Uh, I'll go back a little bit. Hollywood is a union town. Yeah. Anytime any combination of powerful unions 
teamsters, the actors, the directors, the writers, any combination of those can have a contract that's up for renewal simultaneously. And when that happens, it's a perfect storm for a work slowdown or shutdown or strike. Sure. I would, and I'm talking about in the 70s, late 70s, when that happened, I would just take my thimble full of talent in my bag full of tricks and go on the road, usually as a conductor. And I wrote shows for Vegas acts. Two of my Vegas acts, Dinah Ross and Tom Jones, shared the same opening act. Oh, wow. Okay. A brilliant comic named George Wallace. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He used to tell me about his best friend named Jerry, and occasionally I'd see him in the comedy clubs, but I never met Jerry. And it turns out many years later that in real life, Jerry Seinfeld has a best friend named George. It's George Wallace. George Wallace, yeah. So when Jerry was having trouble with the music for, at the time, his pilot called the Seinfeld Chronicles, George Wallace said, hey, you got to call my buddy Wolf. And that is how that phone call happened. Wow, that's incredible. You know, now, did you and Jerry get together and discuss uh, how you wanted the, the sound of the show to be? And also, I, I also read that um, during his stand-up routine at the beginning, you wanted to mirror the music uh, to what he was saying, correct? Yeah. Well, by the way, that story about George Wallace is a callback to our earlier conversation about relationships. Absolutely. I had worked with George for many years uh, when I got the phone call from Jerry, but we kept the relationship alive. An answer to your question? Yeah, Jerry, in that first phone call, described to me the opening credits of his new series. It was Jerry doing stand-up in front of an audience. He tells jokes, people laugh. And he wanted signature, identifiable, quirky music to go along with that as the theme for his show. In that first conversation, I said, Jerry, that sounds like a recipe for an audio conflict. Sure. Remember, late 80s. Mm -hmm. Theme music was melodic, mm -hmm. a lot of silly lyrics and sassy saxophones. Right. Guilty. I created... Plenty of that kind of music for TV shows. But I knew it wasn't going to work for this. So I told Jerry, how about we treat your human voice telling jokes as the melody of the Seinfeld theme? My job, Jerry, will be to accompany you in a way that's musical and fun and quirky and unique, maybe that is evocative of the energy of New York. And perhaps the organic nature of your human voice might go well, blend well, with the organic nature of human sounds I can make with my tongue and my mouth and my fingers, like this. That's amazing. That's and I had his attention. At any pitch meeting, Dave, I'm sure you've done plenty of pitch meetings. I have. There's a moment at which you need to grab their attention so they're not looking around. So they're, they're just focused on you. Correct. And he can close the deal. That was my moment where I had him. He goes, how's that work? Uh, I said, tell you what, 
It was a Saturday. I was by myself at my office. Come on over, Jerry. You're a friend of George. Come on over. Hire me first on the phone. Right. And then come on over and I'll show you how it works. Bring some video of you doing right. stand-up. So he came over that day. He brought video and I, I created this little groove of samples. I showed him how I sample my lips and tongue and finger snaps and uh, created this little undercurrent, this yeah. percolating rhythm. Yeah using those that kind of went well with his voice. I noticed that his delivery has a musical quality to it. I put a clock on it. I figured it was somewhere around 110. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That's the meter. That's the tempo of our Seinfeld theme. The slap bass I treated kind of like the vaudeville rim shots that sure. framed jokes in those days. I could use the slap bass to punctuate and move in between and weave in and out of his lines. Uh, and I showed him how that works. I showed him how I could sample slaps. Um, at the time, slap bass had not yet enjoyed celebrity status as a solo instrument. At the time, it was buried in funk music. I brought it forward, illuminated it, did bad things to it with phase manipulations and EQ and compression, so it was real nasal, and right. uh, created a bass line so basic, so simple and sophomoric that it did not require four beats to the bar, sure. did not require meter, did not... I could stop and start, change keys, depending on what was going on in his monologue. I could change tempos depending on what he was doing. I could make his physical comedy into choreography sure. using the bass. And uh, so I, I did one. I did a one of his monologues in front of him, and he was in love. He loved it right away. Remember, there was before, this was before, there was no internet there was no facetime no zoom so he called larry david and on the phone and held the phone up to the speakers sure. <laughs> and played it for him and larry's a very smart guy he's a right. very musical guy and he got it he understood it sure. and you know he said well every monologue is going to be different you're going to record a new piece of music for each one i went yeah that's the plan right right to fit the timings of the jokes and the overall length of the monologue. So I, I knew that I was going to have to do that. But here's the other thing. This show, it only had four episodes. That's okay. not really an order. That's an right. insult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, hundreds of series I've worked on. Right. We've already gone over this. Yeah. Never, ever in my entire career did I ever encounter an order of four episodes sure yeah this, this is clearly a show that the network mm -hmm. does not firmly believe in they're gonna <laughs> pick you know four nights in june and burn this off no one will ever see it so it was not that big of a commitment to me sure. to agree to this right did that answer your question <laughs> yeah it did and this brings me to my next one uh and you pretty much already answered this i guess but uh did you ever think when you took on this job that the show would become this iconic? Nah, this this show was doomed. First of all, it was so weird <laughs> in its day. 
it was like a sitcom from Mars. <laughs> and Larry refused to take notes from the network, sure. you know, make it, to make it more like the other sitcoms. Um, so we just figured we're going to do four episodes and be done. Just have and, we did, and by the way, we had no time slot. Sure. It got moved all over the place. And, <laughs> um, so no, we, we did. In fact, okay. Are we, how are we doing for time? We okay? Oh, we're we're good. As much time all as right. you want. <laughs> Here's a story. Uh, at some point I, I, I showed up on stage and saddled up next to, uh, Glenn, Glenn Padnick. Who was our boss everybody's boss he was head of tv for castle rock and i said glenn I, I really like this show i don't usually get attached to my shows they come and go but if there's anything i can do to help sure like the mouse said to the lion call me yeah. and he appreciates what a gentleman he said thank you that's a very kind offer and the next day he called me he says, I've been thinking about what you said. What do you know about making radio spots? I said, dude, <laughs> if it's audio and music, you got the right guys there. Yeah. So Jerry and Larry and the others came over, you know, Julia and Jason and Michael came over to my studio. Larry wrote these little vignettes that I recorded and packaged into and formatted for radio spots. And mostly it was about, okay, we're moving to a new spot. We're now on Wednesday nights at eight and we're now right. on Friday at nine. And just kind of to let people know where we were going to be. Right, right. And after you record something, you're not done. You got to package it and label it and format it. And remember, this is all tape. So you, you had to do test tones and all. There's a lot of other stuff to do to package right. it and get it ready. So while I was doing all that stuff, they were hanging around yeah. and and they're just talking about wouldn't it be great if this show actually caught on yeah and larry's off in the corner doing whatever larry does and jason who had most recently become fairly well known as a screen actor for playing villains sure. awful despicable characters he was in pretty woman he's the guy who attempted rape on julia roberts who was america's sweetheart right. so he was a hated guy right. so jason said out loud i just want the show to go so maybe people will like me as george yeah sure and larry his ears perked up and he goes what what did you just say he goes well larry i've been playing villains it's nice to play a good guy right and larry just to nobody in particular shook his head and said I don't think so. And <laughs> at that moment, George Costanza became the most despicable guy you could possibly imagine. He lied and cheated and right. it just made it, Larry made him as horrible of a human as he possibly could because he knew yeah. that Jason wanted to be liked, <laughs> that Jason could pull that off. So that's my funny Larry story. Now, talk about all the actors that were at your studio that day. Did you create different themes for each of the characters on Seinfeld? Now, I did that on other shows, you know, like right. some of these drama shows that I was in rotation for. But no, on Seinfeld, there was just the that signature quirky earworm sound. And my goal was that to make it so 
instantly identifiable, like a sonic brand, mm-hmm. that people from another room with their head in the refrigerator would hear it, and a Pavlovian response would happen. Sure. Ooh, Seinfeld. Exactly. Um, yeah, I know Larry and Jerry signed off on, on the sound that you created. Were there any other executives that had to sign off before it actually made it to air? No, not at, no. Not at first. Sure. Again, I don't think anybody at the network was really paying much attention sure. to this little show. It's like the ugly stepchild. Uh, but for, I think, season two, Warren Littlefield uh, had said, well, we need some changes made if we're going to do a season two. And he had a list. And apparently music was on the list, which is the only reason why I was invited to this meeting in Warren's office. And so they did that first, not because it was the most important, but that was the only reason I was there. So we could deal with this and then I could leave. And Warren, who's a good guy and a a brilliant guy, by the way, speaking of compelling, compelling, brilliant folks, Warren Littlefield's the bomb. I did 17 series during his you know reign of success right um, did a lot of must see tv for warren littlefield so none of this is negative about warren he's smart he's a good guy he knows what he's doing um warren said the music what is that is what is that instrument is is that he could we not afford real music <laughs> it's it's distracting it's weird it's annoying <laughs> and it, up to this point larry's just not paying attention at all yeah, he's yeah. just shaking his head and not <laughs> he didn't want to hear any kind of notes right and he he heard warren say it's annoying and he kind of <laughs> smiled at that he thought oh cool it's annoying <laughs> that's what he wanted right yeah. yeah and so i i put up a finger and i said and i huddled with with glenn padnick our boss and larry and jerry and i said look guys Jerry, you saw how quickly I can create a whole new sound for this show. I can do it again. You got, look at that list. There's a bunch of things on that list. Choose your battles. Let's give them this one. I'll do new, I'll do different music. You'll love it. I'll have it for you by tomorrow. And Larry, who I didn't know yet, gets furious at me. For even suggesting that we were going to cave on this, <laughs> starts yelling at me, oh, you know, like I'm, you know, like I'm a child. What? <laughs> who asked you? Get out! Not, not You're done happen. here, Wolf. Not out! Happen, right? <laughs> he just, he just threw me out. And I looked at Glenn because he's technically my boss. Sure. And Glenn kind of shrugged and said, "Look, Larry, Jerry, I'm. That's what I'm here for. Is to." stand with you on anything that's important to you. And if this is important to you, I'll stand with you on this. But Wolf makes a good point. It's a long list. (laughs) And Larry just pointed at the door and glared at me. (laughs) I didn't know at the time that he just, he did that with everybody. He he likes to stir the pot and yell at people. (laughs) So um, I left the meeting and obviously the music stayed in the picture. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jonathan, talk about um, the recent release of the soundtrack album that you put together. Uh, years in the making, but so happy that it's out, all of us Seinfeld fans. So talk about the soundtrack album and what listeners can expect. 
in 2020, Warner asked me to create a playlist for a potential soundtrack album whose release might coincide with the Netflix premiere because that was a really big deal. Right, right. Half a billion dollar deal, by the way. Wow. Often, soundtrack albums include brilliant masterpieces of musical artistry, compelling, momentous film score suites that require critical listening. <laughs> Not this one, Beaver, you know. <laughs> Seinfeld fans should have fun with this album. You know, play it at a Seinfeld themed party. I, except for George An George's answering machine, I wrote all the music on the Seinfeld soundtrack album specifically for Seinfeld. Each track on the album is special to me. Sure. I mostly selected Seinfeld fan favorites for inclusion on the album and the music. These were my parameters. It had to be music that was featured audio in the scene that sure. played a role a memorable role in the comedy right, right and is instantly recognizable as an identifying signature for a favorite seinfeld scene those were the rules right right that helped me get rid of nine years worth of music uh a lot of it it by the way this thank you for mentioning it it's it's easy to find spotify apple music itunes store youtube wherever you get your digital music this album is there and uh warner brothers very graciously said that if in any interview if we mentioned the album we can play music so here, incredible, like here's incredible. An, here's an example of one of those pieces of music that i really liked It's the feel the beat music from Kramer's boombox. Yeah. <laughs> I love you are a lover boy scene when George did the semi-naked yep. photo shoot. <laughs> and you know, I'm hoping That's that amazing. Seinfeld fans will use the record, that piece on the record, to create their own All right. <laughs> lover boy yeah. video and posted on tiktok amazing you know it should it should be fun Absolutely. this music you know and there's there's scenes that are just i mean i was just thrilled that the writers wrote situations that included me all right dave what is it <laughs> it's Kramer's pimp walk. Oh yeah, of course, of course. You know, I I have this scene in my head. You know, uh, about um, George. You know, a lot of a lot of scenes revolve around him, his scenes. But there was one scene where he had to take off his shirt when he went to the bathroom. Then he walked out without his shirt on. It's just a hilarious scene. And then you know, scenes with his his wallet being so fat. And there was another uh, scene where he. Um, was if if somebody throws something away, gar food in the garbage, is it okay if it's on top to eat it? Just hilarious scenes with George. Yeah, yeah. So I I was grateful that when those George scenes came up, yeah. I was able to do music for them. Absolutely, just incredible. Jonathan, any other music you can play for us? Sure. I mean, there 
there there were moments there were there were tropes sure recurring comedic devices that would happen during the the show like our chase scenes you know there's like the cable guy chasing Kramer right right <laughs> and I treated those scenes like they were real action right, right. movie scenes <laughs> I think that's what kind of added to the humor of it too absolutely yeah um, and then sometimes I did them more tongue-in-cheek like like because this one was just so ridiculous Jerry chasing Newman through the building so I, I did kind of a nod towards yeah. Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they were fun. And, and we did a lot of movie yeah. pastiche scenes. Yeah. You know, like when, when Morty Seinfeld and his family left the disgraced president after he was impeached. Sure. Home from in Del Boca Vista with regal dignity. <laughs> and these are all on the, the record, and they're, they're supposed oh, to just help you yeah. have happy memories of fun Seinfeld music. Now, all the mouth sounds, the mouth popping sounds that you use for the soundtrack, where did you get that idea? Sampling technology in 1989 was in its infancy. Sure. And I just really wanted to use it, so I'd find ways of using yeah. it. <laughs> so that kind of, I'd been tinkering with it, and, you know, I'd done a couple of projects with it, and I thought, hey, here's a chance to make it a primary yeah. tool. Well, little did you know that you'd be needing it someday, right? Well, no, I knew it was going to be needed. It was clear that sampling was with us for, you know, the there were no limits sure. to the application that sampling could be, and I was an early adopter. So uh, that's kind of what I was probably thinking during that phone call yeah. with Jerry, that, okay, what can I use sampling for? Then you know, I, could, I could build this accompaniment of his monologues modularly i can right. architect these modularly manipulatable music lego pieces sure to fit around his monologue and it would still hold water it would still be the seinfeld theme so that was kind of my thinking at the time we'll talk about the importance of creating a mood for um you know, through music for a TV or film production, because if it's done wrong, it could really ruin a production. And if, and if it's, it's done right, you don't even notice. Yeah. Um, in my job, and in those 75 series that I did, I focused squarely on half-hour primetime network comedies, because that's where the money is. Right. My whole business plan was about royalties um my job when underscoring scenes was to serve the comedy heighten the comedy or be a counter to it like on those 
action chase sure. scenes. Sure. And sometimes it was to create, you know, like Peterman, when Elaine travels to the jungles of what they called Burma. Sure. Found Peterman in a cave. That was so weird, so netherworldly that I went with it and created this weird soundscape to go with it using non-standard instrumentation. Wow. Kind of mind-bending yeah, 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 stuff. For sure. Wow. Yeah, that really adds to that for sure. Yeah, that for a for a guy like me with eclectic backgrounds and eclectic tastes, this series was a perfect gig yeah. for me. And sometimes I just did went, you know, silly. You know, like Jerry the mailman, remember that one? Yeah, I sure do. <sighs> you, you know what and I created this whistling. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny about that story is, uh, I say, I, I think it was Skip was the editor at the time, and I mm -hmm. sent that over a little demo. I did a quick, just whistling and guitar demo. Right, right. I uh, sent it over to editing so Skip could have something to to work with and to see what Spike thought of it. Mm -hmm. Spike wrote that episode, and Spike called me and said, Spike Ferriston, by the way. Mm -hmm brilliant writer yeah yeah and uh he, he said yeah i like the whistling we're good right and i went well cool i'll i'll re-record it this afternoon with a a real whistler sure and he goes no no i like it just like it is you don't have it to record it <laughs> i went spike i'm not a very good whistler and spike said jerry's not a very good mailman yeah i thought i thought it was fantastic you know another thing is when you do transitions musically between scenes i think a lot of people take that for granted and i think it's important to be able to uh take people from scene to scene musically absolutely yep like exactly. that like that absolutely like that yeah you know and um as the show progressed, I got, as they say, jiggy with it. <laughs> and my, my, around my office, it became a thing sure. for my people to leave me little gift samples. <laughs> big yeah, samples. Yeah. <laughs> they'd, if they had a minute, they'd make, they'd do weird things with bass and leave them for me and leave me a sticky note that said, hey, check out, you know, what I left for you on, <laughs> you know, these notes on this, on this channel. Sure. And so the sound evolved mm -hmm. over time. And you've got some mouth pops in there, I noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, did, I kept adding to that. Every time I learned how to do a new trick yeah, with yeah. my mouth, I'd, I'd <laughs> sample it and include it. So thanks for noticing those quirky cool. little, <laughs> little uh, in-between musics. That was, it, was, it was always fun for me. And... As the show progressed, these opportunities for special material increased. They realized they could come to me yep. with musical situations and, uh, you know, make them happen. Yeah. Even, you know, nobody, nobody pretends that the finale was our best episode. Sure. 
and it got mixed reviews and that's okay yeah um but for me man there was a lot of music in yeah. that finale sorry like i was i just was feeling silly when uh, i saw that suitcase montage that's great yeah i did it's another thing i i, I didn't play a lot of piano on Seinfeld. It just didn't come up. Sure, right. You well, it does occasionally. Like, <laughs> like, like there was one day I, I, had, I went down to the set and accompanied on piano Mel Torme. Right, right. We did it live in front of the audience. So that was kind right. of, that was, as the kids say, hashtag good day at work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those things, oh, and when George was dating the concert pianist in the Pez dispenser, right. <laughs> I went to the set and performed the Beethoven Sonata. Yeah, uh, but that was an opportunity for me to just play some silly piano. Yeah. And when we were waiting for the verdict, I loved that little montage. Yeah, that they put together. And I went, you know, it's a small town. It's sure <laughs> kind of like jailhouse harmonica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. What? Well, it actually takes you there without even seeing it. It just puts you there. Um, it's amazing when, when music can put you in a place without even seeing it, anything on the screen. Well, it helps that that particular montage had no dialogue. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so all you heard was was the music. Um, yeah. You know, that, So it was a fun job for me. There was plenty yeah. of stuff for me to do. I remember when uh, uh, Larry David called me. Uh-oh, that's never a good thing. <laughs> but Larry called me and said, you know, there's no no opening monologue for this episode, but I need you to create the opening song for Rochelle Rochelle the Musical. <laughs> uh, hey, wow. cool. I'm on it. How long <laughs> should this yeah. opening number be? Is it is right. it a minute long? Is it two minutes long? Oh, no, no, no. doesn't matter how long it is because... Yeah. The, the, the understudy is going to be too weepy <laughs> yeah. to finish it. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> and now you're, I, I can see your face. You're a young guy. <laughs> you may have no real memories of Tanya Hardy. <laughs> well, I sure do. Uh, I was, um, Born in 1968, and I graduated high school in 87, so I was definitely around for the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan. Uh, okay, good oh, yeah. then. You know, a lot of sign <laughs> young Seinfeld viewers yeah. have no real memory of you know Tanya Harding crying about her bootlace oh. at the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To I them, did. it's just another funny scene about nothing. Yeah, just just incredible. Every piece uh, is perfect for the scene that it was uh, for. Uh, now, Jonathan, in your long career, you know, I guess uh, in, as being a composer, a musician, in the entertainment field in general, what was your most important lesson that you learned that we can pass along to our listeners? Uh, I'm guessing that a lot of your listeners are artists, music right. artists, right? Most of them, yeah. yeah. Even if they're not, this is a good lesson. Sure. Remember I told you that for 10 years... I did musical chores. Right. It was a good life, and I made a lot of money doing this. 
but it was not a well-managed career. I had no control over what I was doing or where I was doing it. The telephone told me what to do every day and where to go. And more importantly, long-term, no idea of its destination. It wasn't until I created a business plan for myself. So my advice is each one of you right now should have a business plan. Must be clear, concise. It's got to state your primary goal so that you can prioritize choices that move you toward your goal. Sometimes you may not, sometimes, for me, I didn't even understand what my primary goal was until I had to create this business plan. Your business plan's got to be practical, sustainable, flexible enough for a changing landscape or surprise opportunities. But most importantly, listen up, your business plan must be in writing. Got to be able to put it somewhere where you'll see it every day in physical form. Right. Read it out loud to another human. So you commit to this. Once I did that, Dave, mm. created and committed to a business plan, at that moment, I knew exactly what I needed to do to get to that place. And mm. for me, that place was to be a full-time TV composer. Yeah. Well, not only did you do it, but you're an acclaimed composer and creator of some of the most iconic, uh, you know, soundtracks of our lives in um, in in the entertainment business. Uh, so, a true go-to person for this type of work. Uh, so, I want to actually um, talk to our listeners about how they can find you on social media because I actually found you on Instagram when I posted a picture. Uh, that I took of Deborah Messing on the red carpet at the Tonys, and you actually responded to it, and uh, was I was able to connect with you that way. Uh, so again, everybody, the power of social media definitely does exist. And just you know, again, just uh, talk about your social media a little bit. Yeah. And, and by the way, that photo of Deborah—it's a beautiful photo. It oh, is not a glamour shot. It usually she's perfectly made up and looks like a model and stuff. Right, right. But I thought she she looked really beautiful. Uh, yeah. Deborah was on Seinfeld. She played Beth, the yeah. you know the racist, yeah. <laughs> anti-dentite you know yeah, yeah. girlfriend, which was pretty funny. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so later, when I started working on Will and Grace, as the composer for Will and Grace, I got to bring that up with her. Just amazing. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about your website and what uh, listeners can expect. Oh, right. Yeah. My superhero alias is <laughs> at Seinfeld Music Guy. Right. One word. Seinfeld Music Guy. It's, it's, it's you know, subtle, right? Um, <laughs> and I, I'm kind of liking Instagram these days. Yeah. I do Sometimes <laughs> when I'm left home alone and unsupervised, I'll just sit at my piano and I'll ramble a bit and play the piano and it's i, I kind of like what yeah. you can do on instagram but I, i'm easy to find in all places at seinfeld music guy so thank you for mentioning that reach out to me i want to hear from you uh by the way you mentioned that i am the go go-to guy i am not 
I am happily We're retired. Fully <laughs> retired. Yeah. I had a nice long turn at bat. Yeah. Now yeah. it's relaxing. It's your time. turn. <laughs> Hit it hard. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Jonathan, before we end the podcast, uh, I want to ask you this question because I know you do lectures. And just out of curiosity, uh, what is the most common question that you get from your audience out there? Let's talk about that. This is weird and funny because I bailed on school when I was 17. Okay. And now I master class at the most highfalutin conservatories like sure. Juilliard and Eastman, USC, Berkeley. And I lecture at the most haughty, fancy universities and law schools. <laughs> Here's a useless factoid, Dave. <laughs> I have lectured at every Ivy League school. Wow. <laughs> including <laughs> Harvard Law, Columbia wow. Law, Cornell Law, UPenn Law. It's weird because obviously I'm not a lawyer. Uh, it's a long list. Yeah. My lectures are never prepared and I use no notes. I blather, I prattle, and if nobody snores or heckles, <laughs> I call it a win. Success. <laughs> the Q&A, to your question, yeah. is my favorite part yeah. because the questions I get are usually unique, not common, and challenging. Yeah. And I answer them best I can, if I can. Now, I'm not really a snarky guy. Right. But occasionally, yeah, maybe I'll get a common, cliche, dumb, predictable question yeah. to your, you said, what's the most common question? <laughs> and sometimes I'll not be able to resist. Say, wait, wait, really? Yeah. I, am I in the right place? Because my schedule says I'm supposed to be lecturing today at MIT. Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what kind of question is that at MIT? Anyway, um, but I also, by the way, do corporate public speaking okay. jobs. Okay. Uh, I do corporate concerts mm -hmm. uh, where I tell stories from the piano and, you know, law conferences, right. bar associations stuff. Let's face it. At the end of the day, do these people really need to hear from another brilliant legal mind? Nah. <laughs> they want something fun. They can yeah, ask exactly. me dumb questions like, you know, what's it like working with Larry David? And <laughs> for those folks... I welcome those questions because that's what I'm there for. Right. For fun. Right. So yeah, I do get some common questions there, but yeah. at the lectures and my master classes, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm really impressed by these young people. Yeah. By the way, a lot of these young people, no verse and chapter of Seinfeld. Yeah. It's weird because I created that music before they were born. Yeah. I. I mean, I know I'm 53 right now, and and sometimes when I mention. Uh, some scenes or some TV sitcoms from, from the 80s, you know, some of the younger people <laughs> I talk to, they look at me like I have three heads. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know these things? So anyway, I'm still a big fan, uh, you know, in, with syndication and streaming. Right now, I, I still watch Seinfeld to this day and still enjoy every minute of it. So again, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to join me tonight. I'm, I'm so excited. I think it moved. <laughs> I really appreciate you reaching out to me on this, Dave. This has been a super terrific happy hour. It has. It has. Thanks again, Jonathan. Have a great night. Ciao.